I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Martin Wolf, is Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times, London. He has won numerous awards, including the 2019 Gerald Loeb Lifetime Achievement Award. He was a member of the UK's Independent Commission on Banking in 2010 and 2011. The Wikipedia entry on Wolf notes that he is widely regarded as one of the most influential economics journalists in the world. Lawrence Summers has called him the world's preeminent financial journalist. Paul Krugman wrote of him that Wolf doesn't even have a PhD, and that matters not at all. What he has is a keen sense of observation, a level head, and an open mind. Wolf is the author of five books on broad-ranging economics issues. His latest book, published just this year, is entitled The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, which is the subject of today's interview. Martin, welcome to Delving In. It's a pleasure to be with you. So first off, I want to express my appreciation for your latest book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, particularly for its forthright defense of democratic capitalism as the best possible, albeit imperfect, combination of political and economic systems. This is a book with an unabashed value system that treats people with respect and dignity, regardless of social class. It is also a realistic book that pushes back against utopian ideas and is cognizant of the eternal vigilance needed to preserve democratic capitalism as a viable system, which includes timely and continual adjustments to new economic, social, and environmental realities as they evolve. I also appreciate that you are quite worried that democratic capitalism is an enormous danger and may very well not make the necessary adjustments to the multitude of changes facing us. The stakes, as you write, couldn't be higher. If we fail, most of the world's nation states could become autocracies of one form or another, perhaps within the next few decades. So before we launch into all this, and this is a lot to cover in an hour, give us a sense of your own intellectual evolution regarding these issues. How did you get to your present understanding? So first of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you, and thank you for the introduction. I think the answer to your question goes something like this. I've been professional economist since my early 20s, and that was about 1970. I started working in 1971 at the World Bank, and at that stage I was, and remain actually, very interested in development issues, and the dominant concern there was how to improve the trajectory of a lot of developing countries. But there was also an emerging concern in the developed world, particularly my own country, Britain, but also in the US, about things that were going wrong. Most obviously, the oil shocks, which were a huge shock, a huge surprise, high inflation, and the sense that policymakers were no longer in command of events. And that's the point at which I started. So I never enjoyed the halcyon years of the 50s and 60s as an economist, though I was, grew up in them. I started off in a decade of crisis. And this period led me to think that I was always moderate, I think, at least not certainly not extreme, that we needed more market, that we'd become too interventionist, both in developing countries. I worked on India in the 70s, where this was completely obvious but also in countries like Britain. We needed to shift towards the market. There were obviously huge problems 
in managing our then existing system with, if you like, the Keynesian consensus of my youth. And that was more or less where I was during the 80s and then the fall of the Soviet Union seemed to confirm the idea that socialism was not really a functional system, it wasn't a credible alternative, bankrupt intellectually and morally, and some form of democratic capitalism was the right system for most people. And this was also reconfirmed in a rather strange way by China's decision to move away from Maoism, which I was very well aware of when I was young, to a much more liberal market economy. Of course, it remained a communist society. And in, at, in 1989, over the Tiananmen Square uprising, that was reconfirmed. But they were also going to the market. So I was generally pretty content that moving towards the market was the right direction. And I was also pretty convinced at that stage, naively as it turned out, that our political system was working reasonably well. Nobody was too wildly dissatisfied with democracy. Well, everywhere else, people were pretty wildly dissatisfied with autocracy. We saw the collapse of the Soviet empire overnight, as it seemed. We saw lots of developing countries get rid of their dictators. And even China was not very assertive at this point about its political system, except domestically. And then in the course of the 1990s, with successive financial crises in developing countries, including the Asia financial crisis, emerging structural imbalances in the global balance of payments, obviously big increases in inequality going on, I began to be more worried about whether this new system was working as well as I would have liked. And similarly, I began to be worried slowly about what was happening to our political system. But it was only after the financial crisis and the backlash that followed it of various kinds and the political fragility throughout the world, but particularly in developed countries, that I began to be really concerned that I had been far too complacent about the stability of the basic democratic order in the world, but particularly in our own societies. And two events, pretty obvious events, the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States, which was, to me, not unexpected when he became a candidate, but still quite a shock, and Brexit, made me start saying, something's going wrong with our politics. And surely this has something to do with what's happened with our economy. And that then led me to write this book. And I see this as a continuation of my rethinking, which was already there in my previous book, The Shifts and the Shocks, which was an in-depth examination of the global financial crisis of 2007 to 2010. So it sounds like your confidence that the system is the best system is only intensified, if anything, over the years, or it's been consistent in a case, but what's changed is your concern that the system is in trouble. Yes. I have always, since my childhood, and this is actually, I think, discussed in my book's preface, been a deeply, passionately, morally committed to the idea of a free society which embraces very much politics and economics with democracy a central value. And this is so for pretty straightforward and obvious reasons. 
my parents were both refugees from Hitler's Europe. They were Jews. My father came from Vienna, my mother from the Netherlands, and they met in London. A complicated story, not important. But the crucial point is they escaped just in different ways with their lives. But in both cases, pretty well all their wider families beyond their immediate families were slaughtered in the Holocaust. And that awareness of our history and that history and of the precursors of World War II and its consequences has always shaped my awareness of the world, a tragic awareness in a way. And that was intensified by the Cold War, which was seemed very, very immediate. It was the dominant political fact of my childhood. And my father had always been, and he influenced me enormously, passionately opposed to communist totalitarianism. It made him a bit of exception of Central European intellectuals of the first half of the 20th century, which is very much what he was. And he believed, therefore, not only that Nazism, fascism were a mortal enemy, which they obviously were, but so was Soviet totalitarianism. And this contrast between the two great totalitarian creeds of the 20th century with what he saw as the hope, admittedly imperfect, but always the hope of freedom and democracy, framed his thinking about the world and is deeply embedded in my sense of the world. So I've never had any doubt that for human beings to live a reasonably tolerable life, the security, the fundamental security can be given by free institutions is essential. And everything I've seen in my life as I've traveled around the world in many different countries has tended to reconfirm those deep values. But what has become, I'm afraid, more obvious to me in the last 10 years is how fragile they are and how threatened they can be in some ways, though in different form, by some of the forces that we also saw in the early part of the 20th century. And you also point out in your book that democracy can disappear. It has disappeared in various countries, and it seems to be disappearing before our eyes now in Poland and Hungary and Turkey and other places. So the fragility is not just theoretical, obviously. It's very much not theoretical. As you point out, one of the ways I start in my book is with a history of democratic institutions. And this notes that the beginning of the 19th century, according to a fairly standard database, there weren't any democracy, any countries that you could really call democracies, even if they had elections, the franchise was so limited as to be obviously not any sense of democracies. We would understand it. We had something of an upswing in the late 19th century, though of course only in the imperial metropoles and countries like the United States or Canada. And then after the First World War and a brief upswing after that, we saw this terrible collapse into communism and fascism. So it was a massive backsliding, to put it mildly, after the Second World War, when all these new countries, the post-imperial countries were made independent, many of them, alas, fell into really very brutal and, and horrible dictatorships. Again, there was a big 
renaissance of democracy in the 80s and 90s, reaching its all-time peak, as it were, in the early part of this century. But in the last 15, 16, 17 years or so, there's been another recession. So we know it's fragile and it has been destroyed in countries that were liberated from authoritarian rule, such as Germany in the interwar period, very important country. And right now, again, of course, in the last 20 years in Russia, not such a different story. So the fragility of democracy is evident. What is different is that it looks pretty fragile now, not just in very recently democratizing countries emerging and developing world or in the former Soviet bloc, but even in very central ways in core Western countries. And it has to be said to me, the probably the biggest shock of all has been, I see as the attempt by your former president, Donald Trump, to overthrow the outcome of the last election and of his party, which after all is a co-equal party essentially with the Democrats in your system, this his party has continued to support his proposition that he is the legitimate president of the United States. That looks to me, look to me and looks to me like an attempted coup. So these are hugely troublesome times to me and it's not anymore just in, as it were, the periphery of the democratic world it is also in its core. So b- before we go on to talk about the long-term negative trends that's, that threaten the survival of democracy, would you just give us some background on the concept of complementary opposites, being that the democratic system and the capitalistic economic system need each other, but even though they have different aims, that they're somehow they balance each other? This is where I came to when I was started to think about this subject, and I am guess what I say is quite controversial in some ways. But when I started thinking about this book, it led me to explore in areas that are newish to me. I don't claim to have begun to read everything on these subjects, but it seemed to me that we have to start from an absolutely fundamental proposition about humanity. We are social animals, intensely social animals, and we operate in fairly large groupings. And even hunter-gatherer bands are quite large by the standards of most large animals. And of course, once we went beyond that, we went into the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands and so forth. So we have very complex social arrangements which require politics. That's as simple as that. Of course they do. We have to have some mechanisms of social decision-making. But the purpose and the goal, the test, if you like, of such a social order is that it solves our economic problem, just as it does for all other animals. What do I mean by our economic problem? It's no more than that we should get enough to survive. That's what all animals, indeed all living things, have to do. They have to get enough to survive. And we solve this problem sensationally, successfully, perhaps too successfully, by our ability to cooperate. That's what makes us such a staggeringly successful species, a plague species indeed, from the point of view of the world. So our political and economic lives are profoundly, deeply intertwined. They're, as it were, two sides of one coin. 
Now, if you look back on the last, let's say, six or 7,000 years, which is, of course, not the same everywhere, but the era of the agrarian, since the agrarian revolution, we've tended to construct societies which have certain characteristics. We did construct societies which had certain characteristics. A power system in which a relatively small number of people controlled the territory, the land, usually because they also controlled the armies, always because they controlled the armies, and many of them were war leaders of various kinds, and a large group of people, much larger group, who worked on the land, and they gave up of their surplus to these rulers. So this was a system, the normal system, as I think of it for humanity, in which power and wealth were coterminous. Essentially, the economy was a relatively simple one, and the people with the wealth had the power, and the people with the power had the wealth. Now, in the last two or three hundred years, we have created something on a large scale. There have been attempts at this before the Athens in the fifth century BC, but to, we have attempted something never, as far as I can see, attempted before to make a very large societies based on the principle that power and wealth were not coterminous, that you could separate power from wealth, and in particular, that power could be shared among the people at large. Wealth was less, wealth was more concentrated and governed by the market. So you had the market system and the democratic political system. How did these co-evolve and what are the tensions? My idea on this is, first of all, the market economy clearly came first, capitalism as we call it. And I'm going to go into the details of discussing what exactly capitalism is. I'll take it to be some version of a market economy came first. It emerged in highly oligarchic societies, but one with strong property rights. England was an obvious example, inherited by America, for example. I am going to more detail, but England was particularly important because it's where the Industrial Revolution started. And the essence of that is once the capitalist system started going, it started creating very profound social and economic revolutions. And these promoted the demand for democracy, both directly and in opposition to the capitalist system. They both worked directly because this, these economic developments of the 19th and early 20th centuries created mass urbanization, the mass industrial labor force that encouraged the development of the labor movement and parties, political organizations of the left, which were able to and did demand a strong voice in politics that became ever increasing. And the idea, in addition, I argue, of capitalism, which is very revolutionary, though it doesn't seem so now, we think of it as sort of slightly conservative. But the idea was that anybody could start a business, be successful in the business, if they found a market in accordance with the law and could achieve great wealth, greater than the territorial magnates of old, the aristocrats, or even the monarchs. And they too would demand a political say and if once you say that anybody can achieve wealth, people start saying, well, it's not just a matter of their achieving wealth. They're just ordinary people like me. They happen to be good at business. 
I'm an ordinary person. I want a, a voice too. So the demand for political say became very powerful throughout society ever since the capitalist revolution really started getting going. And then there was another positive element, which is that as the economy developed, people started saying, we want educated workforce. We need education. Everybody has to be educated. So they started doing this. And across one society after another, we got universal education. We got a literate population. And there you have a literate population, and they all demand a say in politics. And that was reinforced, so I don't discuss it at length, with the mass conscription of the 19th and early 20th century. So you've got this immense demand for a, a powerful, wide say in politics. And that culminated in what I think of as the sort of New Deal or social democratic settlement at the middle of the 20th century. That's a very summary story. But of course, capitalism went on doing its thing. The economy got overturned and changed in ways that were less favorable to this settlement. That's very obvious now. And in addition, it started politically and economically, creating vastly greater inequality, corroding this sense of a shared destiny and recreating in a very powerful way the enormously wealthy plutocracy, which we have seen emerge in the last 30, 40, 50 years, sending us back to the sort of period in the late 19th century it was so difficult. So. It's this that creates, and I know this is a very lengthy statement, this very complicated relationship between democracy and capitalism, which is some in ways supportive and in some ways in opposition. And that's where I think we are. So I'm just wondering about the some of the long-term negative trends. You've already identified quite a few, but I'm wondering if we could also talk about, in particular, two that are maybe a little less well-known. One being that in your book, you say that the rise in productivity is actually stalled, which I think most people would not really recognize that in the 50s and 60s of the industrialization and there was a rapid increase of efficiency and shared wealth that somehow has not continued, even though we have the technological revolutions and digital revolution that would appear to be creating more wealth. But you say, no, it's not actually. This is one of the most interesting puzzles in economics. And I think I have some explanations. I don't want to go into vast detail. But the evidence is reasonably clear that for the developed countries, the high income countries, which are, as it were, at the frontier of human productivity, that's a small part of the world's population, at most about 15%, but they're the frontier. They had astonishingly fast improvements in productivity in the middle of the 20th century on up to the 70s. And since then, and this is aggregate productivity per head, GDP per head, as far as we can measure. But since then, it has slowed. It slowed dramatically in the countries that were then enjoying a very fast catch-up on US levels of productivity. US has been the most productive large economy for, in the world for well over a century, but they slowed really sharply. Here we're talking about countries like Japan, Germany, France, Italy, 
which had done very well and they slowed dramatically, but also the US slowed. The US had a brief upsurge in the early 90s, which a lot of people associate with the internet revolution. But essentially, overall GDP per head in the US has been growing markedly slower overall since the 70s than it did previously. And the there are, I think, two fundamental reasons for that which are connected. The first is, as you said, we have very important new technologies affecting information and communications technology above all, but this isn't that big a part of the economy. A, not as big as the parts of the economy that were transformed by the technological revolutions of the previous 80 years or so. And since we take for granted those technologies, because we've all lived them, with them since we were born, almost however old we are, by the, the technologies invented from about the 1880s onwards, that we don't realize how staggeringly revolutionary they were and how they affected every single aspect of our economy. Yeah, and of course, the other big factor is in, in the Industrial Revolution, the wealth was much more shared because the workers did not have to be highly skilled. The union movement was in full swing. And with the digital revolution, it seems like you have this growing class, growing small class of extremely wealthy people. Yes. But it's not, it's not spread out as much. The crucial thing is we have had this dramatic revolution in a modest part of the economy which has generated staggering wealth to a smallish number of people, but for example, rather little employment. One of my favorite figures, which I think I, uh, this is from memory, is you know, Apple is the most valuable company in the US, indeed the world today, and it employs in the US, if I remember correctly, this may be 50 or 60,000 people. I may be wrong, this is a number, but something like that. Back in the 50s, the most valuable and important company was General Motors. And it employed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of workers, most of which, as you rightly say, were not university educated people. They were workers. And, and there were many other such examples of such companies, the steel businesses and all the rest of them. And productivity growth in these industries has been dramatic. And so they need far fewer workers than they used to. And companies like Apple and so forth, which have this huge wealth, they employ some very skilled, highly paid people and, and have made some people multi-multi-billionaires, but it's not more general than that. Meanwhile, and this is the other side that I have met, our economies have shifted dramatically to services. And many of these services are face-to-face -face services. They're not complicated, sophisticated services. They're restaurants and delivery people and, and looking after children and looking after old people. Very large expansion in our activities. And raising productivity in these things is actually stupendously difficult. Tourism is another example. So quite a large part of our economy just doesn't have the productivity growth we would hope for. And that reflect, then affects the overall performance. Yeah, so this would be a big source of the growing inequality that in, a ter in turn creates political instability. Then outside of the urban areas, the employment prospects are pretty grim. Absolutely. So we lost a lot of industrial work. 
which was could be organized and was relatively well paid. I think that would have happened even if we hadn't opened our markets to imports because we see it even countries which have huge surpluses in trade still reduce see their industrial labor force shrinking. The opportunities for unskilled workers, that is to say those who haven't got a very high level of professional skill, have clearly diminished in every Western country because of these technological and social shifts. And we have generated very good opportunities for highly skilled graduates, particularly those with expertise in information working, though maybe now artificial intelligence is about to demolish those too, but we don't know yet. And we, of course, have generated staggering fortunes for super elite of people working finance and in the new IT sectors predominantly, but they are really quite a small elite. And this generates, this is the one crucial link, I think, with the politics, not only the inequality, which may or may not be so important directly politically, but a very profound sense of insecurity for those in the middle and lower middle of the income distribution, a fear that they will be driven out of them the stable middle class into which their parents and grandparents climbed and back into a highly insecure life of basically casual work of various kinds and down to the bottom into the very insecure positions alongside people that they really rather think that they're superior to. So the ethnic and class factors coincide, I think, in shaping our politics in the middle and bottom of the income distribution. And that is very profound in reshaping our politics. So we have the same technological revolution as diminishing the availability of low-skilled jobs and at the same time greatly increasing the pernicious effect of disinformation because disinformation can be spread so much more easily, so much more quickly, and so much less expensively. So you have both problems with a similar source. There's one, absolutely, I agree with that. We have done a very poor job of managing these new technologies, which have been revolutionary in the most destabilizing possible ways. Though it is also clear that with policy mistakes, uh, things can get much worse. So I think, I've just written a column about this very recently, I think that the American decision to essentially to allow the television industry out of pretty well all regulation and allow broadcasters to emerge who are basically serve very partisan audiences, something that, for instance, the UK has avoided. That's not a technological change. It's a political change. Now, maybe that reflects the scale and diversity of America, but the results have been also pernicious and they didn't really depend on new technologies. But there's no doubt that one of the features of this new world is media reinforced division. And another aspect of the new world, which I think is rather frightening, and I only began to realize in the course of this work, is that so many people in what we in Britain would call the old working class have given up on the idea of progressive reform, of reforms that will help them, and on the sorts of elites that might have historically been in coalition with them to go for belief essentially in right-wing populists. 
Yeah, so you're really talking about the kind of values that are embedded in capitalism. The value that profit is practically the only value is relatively new. And in your book, you very passionately advocate an expansion of values beyond profit. The profit shouldn't be the only thing. And yet the incentives that are embedded in the system of capitalism seems to pull in that direction so strongly. And I think you're right that these values need to be shifted. It used to be that, that corporations cared about their workers, they cared about their customers, and now it seems like they only do so for the sake of profit. If, if they don't have to, if they can get the customer to buy their stuff without caring about them, it's, it, they're happy to do that. How do you shift that, that business ethic I think it was Amitayatsuyoni, if I'm remembering the name right, who spent some time in the Harvard and realized that that's what the Harvard Business School was advocating, profit. That's the only value. It's almost like a commandment. Yes, this is a very complicated issue, and I'm not sure I have the right answers, but I'm pretty clear about the problem. Well, part of the market counter-revolution that I talked about at the beginning of the 70s and early 80s, in reaction to that form of corporatist society, some would say, was undermined by two quite different things, I think, now. First, there was an intellectual counter-revolution, and the man whose name is most associated with that intellectual counter-revolution is, of course, Milton Friedman, who was, Americans would call him libertarian, we would call him classical liberal, but essentially ultra-free market, Chicago school professor. And he said, the business of business is to make profits, period. That's within the rules of the game, quote unquote. And that was legitimized. Business schools in, imported the idea that the aim, this is a reinterpretation of the same thing, of business should be to the maximization of shareholder value and nothing else. And then the second thing that happened, which is the opportunities for them pursue this path were immensely increased by globalization, by the opportunity to ship products, production abroad, and to threaten to ship production abroad. And, and the result was a radical weakening of the power of labor uh, as a constraint upon their reactions of business management. And by introducing, in addition, very strong incentives for management to align their interests we shall the value maximization through bonuses and so forth. The companies really started being managed in this way and in this way only. Now, the question is, what can one do about it? And I think there are two ways of thinking about that. Of course, it seems to me quite clear that this is not a desirable direction. It's led to some very unfortunate outcomes, though it's not the only reason by any means for where we are. There are technological and other social factors at work. But the one way is to actually insist that the purpose of the corporation should be broader. It should maximize, consider environmental, social goals, and that there's been a very fierce debate about this in American and other corporate circles. But some businesses, the Business Roundtable, I think, in the US, has identified itself with that, if I remember correctly. But, crucial but, how much of that can they actually do when all the control rights in the corporation continue to be with shareholders? And that then leads you to the second and more radical possibility of actually including other 
groups and particularly long-term workers in the governance structure and germany has a system of governance which does allow that to happen but again this is controversial but those are the areas one has to start thinking about if you think that corporations should take into account interests beyond those of shareholders now i have one final element which to me is the most obvious one and probably the most difficult which is the, these problems will be smaller if governments were effective regulators and one of the reasons they're not is that money dominates politics and that's particularly true in the us where politics is so expensive and there are no essentially no restrictions whatsoever anymore on donations including unrecorded donations and that, of course, means that wealthy people and above all corporations control politics as well. And then I think you basically had it. I don't see how you manage to escape from these traps in that situation. Yeah, I think the difficulty is how do you change the system when the system is already so entrenched and the, the power interests are hyper-controlling of the reality? You talk in your book about Plato and Plato's Republic and his idea of philosopher kings controlling things. I almost feel like it would be helpful if we could have temporary philosopher kings who could tweak the system, <laughs> tweak, tweak the actual rules and then step aside again. If we look at, back at the transformations within democratic societies, I suppose two sorts of things have combined to make changes. The first is disaster. So the biggest revolutionary set of changes in our society, in our societies, were triggered by the Great Depression and the Second World War. They were profound changes and they shattered political consensus and allowed new leaders to emerge, FDR, who changed a lot. Uh, now, I'm not going to wish for a depression of the Third World War, not least because the Third World War might well be the last war humanity ever has, as uh, so not a sensible thing to consider. We have global warming as if you're looking for a large-scale disaster, we have one developing right now. The trouble with it is it's boiling us slowly. And while if it does boils us quickly, it'll be too late. So th that worries me about. We're very much better at responding to short-term catastrophe than to long-term ones. So that doesn't seem to work. The other thing that sometimes happens is that there is a widely shared sense in the body politic that something is wrong, really widely shared, and it is possible to mobilize against this. I'm thinking here particularly because I think it's a very interesting example of the trust busting movement at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, think of the Sherman Act and Teddy Roosevelt and all the rest of it. And we in Britain had some very important reforms in the beginning of state pensions and all the rest of it in that period and an important element in that so this is the one encouragement and actually the founding of the german welfare state strangely by bismarck even earlier had the same raison raison d'etre which is and this is the one bit of optimism in my book because i find it very difficult to be optimistic which is if you're a member of the elite say the commercial elite or the intellectual elite, and you look around at what's now going on in your in our societies, you might think, I think rightly, by the way, my position isn't that secure here. Yeah, I'm very rich. I don't pay much tax. 
But there is an immense surge of unhappiness. It is being exploited by right-wing populists, maybe left-wing populists later, who really don't like me. They make no secret about that. And basically what they want to do is whatever they like. They want to be able to do whatever they want. And we've seen that in the past and we can see it now. We can look at countries which have rulers who can do whatever they like. And it isn't a very comfortable environment for wealthy and supposedly powerful people. My reductio ad absurdum on that is it's really not much fun being a Russian oligarch these days. <laughs> I argue in my book that it's actually in the interest and this is probably a bit controversial, it's very much in the interest, unless all these super oligarchs want to go and live in New Zealand, to make sure that they live in countries with happy people. Because in countries with happy people who have a say in their lives and who will want a stable democracy, it's also going to be good for them. Yeah, they might have to pay a bit more tax, but it'll be so much more pleasant than living in this sort of feral environment. Certainly, if empathy and mutual interest go hand in hand, that's the best scenario. This, when we need that for climate change thing. If we, can't, if we can't manage that and we can't and we don't want a, a complete breakdown of the system, then I'm afraid we're in terrible trouble. So let's shift gears just a little bit because we're trying to inject a little bit of optimism toward the end of the interview, which is hard to do in this subject. I guess economics is often called the dismal science. I'm not sure if it's because economists tend to be pessimists. I don't Not for this reason. There's another even worse reason, which we can come to if you want. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it was called the dismal science after the work of Thomas Malthus. And Thomas Malthus, of course, argued very much as some of the people most worried about climate change would now, that ultimately human economic activity is limited by natural resources. Our ability to grow more food was the thing he focused on. Uh, he was rather pessimistic on our ability to grow more food, but he assumed in the end, as he put it, that human population would grow geometrically and human production of food would grow arithmetically. And therefore, in the end, our production would be overwhelmed by our consumption and we'd all die out. That's pretty dismal. If you're an, an environmentalist, you would say in a more subtle way, the same thing applies. That's why we're dismal. All right, back to optimism, though. You provide some ideas about making the democratic system healthier in certain ways, that there might be innovations that could be used to strengthen it. In particular, there's an idea called deliberative democracy, also called sortition, citizens' assemblies. You mentioned the appointed house of merit, but it's a, a kind of a, a part of the government that would be more than just advisory, that would pull together experts on the one hand, but also random samples of people on the other hand, to try to get around this problem of misrepresentation, or representation only by the powerful and wealthy. On the one hand, on the one hand, that's one half the problem. The other half of the problem is to having so many voters who don't really know the issues, and even Plato talked about that, that it could be a tyranny of the majority, because the majority really doesn't know what's going on. They're judging things on very superficial grounds. I indulge in a number of ideas about rethinking representative democracy. Now, I should say that my sense, and you will, may change, disabuse me of this, 
is that the American constitutional setup is absolutely locked, frozen. And at least at the, if you take the constitution as a whole, there's just nothing one can do with it. Apparently amendment is impossible and the consensus on any amendment seems inconceivable. So th these things could only be done in the most informal possible ways in the United States. And of course, you do have some examples. You have referendums, which sometimes lead to quite interesting results. I've noticed, for example, in some of your states where more of this go on, the people have, for example, taken what I've think of as far more sensible positions on abortion than some of the legislators, just to take this example. So at the state level, it seems there is more fluidity and that may be, and there's certainly more diversity, and that may be a crucial, a crucial strength of the American Federal Republic. But the ideas that I put forward made more sense constitutionally, if you like, in the British or European context, where changing institutional arrangements is certainly much easier than in the US. It wouldn't be easy, but in the UK, we don't have a constitution, so we can change these arrangements. And we can do some of this informally. Now, this takes a lot of imagination, but one of the examples that has impressed me a lot, because it, admitted in a very small country, is Ireland. So Ireland, as I'm sure, was a very Catholic country, really Catholic country, with absolute bar on abortion and but Ireland has rapidly changed socially and politically and demographically actually and they have become one of the more advanced countries in Europe in these respects so when they were considering abortion which is such a vexed and divisive issue and this is what we should have done with Brexit they set up a commission of ordinary citizens basically I understand it's selected by lot I'm not absolutely sure of that, but a large commission of ordinary citizens who worked on a report together over a long period with advisors and advice and taking the evidence. And at the end, this process brought about a reasonable consensus among the members of this citizen's jury, deliberative democracy, as you like. They got pre-educated on the issues and they produced a consensus report which recommended the reforms that were then accepted because of this process in large part by the citizenry at large in a referendum. And they reached a consensus on the liberalization of abortion, which seems to have stood. I think that's a very exciting example. And it goes back, of course, to the sort of democracy the, the Athenians themselves believed in. Plato didn't much, as you know, but the citizens did because it brought all the citizens in, but not just as voters once every five years, not just as the beneficiaries, quote unquote, of targeted political advertising designed to make them angry, but in a deliberative assembly. Now, of course, we cannot do that with countries of hundreds of millions or even tens of millions, but we could perhaps think of ways that more citizens can be engaged. And the final point here is, I reminds me one of the most interesting things in Top Deal's discussion of America in his great book, Democracy in America, which is his belief in the enormous educational role of the one area where ordinary citizens are and were actively engaged, which is the jury. And that returning in 
some very important things that are happening now in your judicial system, which you know about much more than I do. And so I'm really talking about building on this wonderful institution of the jury, which is many centuries old, and put a crucial element of the justice system in in English-speaking countries in the hands of the ordinary people. And I think our democracy needs to be refreshed by such ideas because its current professionalization and its current demagoguery are intolerable. The beauty of what happened in Ireland is that it was a committee or assembly, whatever you want to call it, around a specific issue. You're not asking people to become experts at everything and you're not expecting them to serve for in order to lengths of time. It's until that one issue is resolved and then you have another assembly for the next issue. I think that's a nice idea and it would be interesting to know. Of course, you'd have to have politicians who are prepared to put it aside. And of course, in America, it'd be much more difficult. But if you had a random selection of Americans, it would have to be random, a few hundred, maybe more, and they were given a year to discuss the issue of abortion in full and in depth. It would be interesting to see what they came up with. Let's shift to talk about one other concept in your book, which I think is a very fraught kind of controversy, but I think is really worth talking about. And that's the idea of meritocracy versus identity politics. I think it's a very timely thing to talk about. In general, your views would be left of center in the United States. I know that I think the political situation in Britain is a bit different. They have some parallels, but my understanding is that the journal, The Economist, would be considered, I guess, conservative in Britain, but it seems very liberal here. So there's differences there. Yeah, I'm afraid our political spectrum and yours hardly overlap anymore. Exactly, exactly. And it's more complicated that we have some yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get into that, but let's talk about meritocracy versus identity politics, which is a very kind of live issue now in the United States. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I have tended to think of identity politics in a different context. But so let me just get at this. So I am now, from your point of view, certainly left of center. There's no doubt in America, I'd be way left of center. Here I will be considered a moderate Labour Party person nowadays, probably. That's a little more radical, but not much. So I've gone back to where I was 50 years ago in this long circle I described at the beginning. So the idea I would have is if we are to make genuine progress in dealing with the issues that I talked about, it's very important that those who want change in the sorts of directions we've been discussing, unite because they are not the dominant groupings in society. And I think that one of the things those who, what I consider the forces of reaction are doing is helping to split people who should be interested in the sort of economic changes I'm talking about in taxation, in distribution, in economic policy, what they're doing is dividing those who would benefit from these changes largely on ethnic and other lines. And that weakens dramatically the political coalition for change. So what you're seeing now is increasingly, in my country and also yours, large elements of their working class coalesce with, if you like, the party of the plutocrats against those who want more sensible, I think, quite modest, but sensible reform. And that blocks it, really blocks it. And in that context, I see what 
identity politics predominantly emphasizing ethnic identity i think that's far more important than the other forms of identity in your politics shatters and divides the the coalition that should naturally demand economic change so this is one reason why i'm very nervous about identity politics i think the question of rights for sexual minorities and so forth is quite separate i don't see that as central to this it's the ethnic identity issue that seems to me most profound now the obviously that coalition can only form if everybody is convinced that their interests will be properly looked after and that then gets to the question of how you secure promotion and success in in society and the advantage of meritocracy if done properly and that's a very big question and i understand that very well so you have to get into all sorts of issues about how education and other advantages are shared out but if done properly a meritocracy should be ethnically neutral and in fact in britain i don't know how it works in america it's actually strikingly it's rather depressingly so it is ethnically neutral in that by and large the ethnic minorities do better than the white working class in securing promotion so that's part of the issue in social promotion dramatically and you can see it in a way and who our prime minister is now the but i do think that the idea of individual merit rather than ethnic identity as the guarantor of your position in society the basis of promotion in society as it were is a necessary condition for forming a wide coalition for reform and not allowing it to be shattered now there are two obviously really huge problems with that one of which but the most above all in one in the US which is the historic position of african americans which i did touch on but i can't say any more on that because it leads to a whole range of issues on which i'm not expert and i understand very profoundly the fraught nature of this but i do feel it's a mistake for people who want progressive change to make ethnic identity a core part of this platform because it is profoundly divisive and makes it far too easy for those who are pursuing reactionary politics to peel off vast chunks of the ethnic majority community into a reactionary coalition and this is obviously very controversial but it is i believe correct and i think that's how your president sees things i may be wrong but that's i think how he sees it but anyway this is why i have this very controversial position in favor of meritocracy and why i think ethnicity though very important shouldn't be a dominant part of coalition forming so maybe another way to put it is that so you're advocating against anything that would exacerbate the kind of us versus them kind of mentality that we want to as much as possible have an us or we the people as in order to be unified in common goals that is right i think successful democratic politics which represent the interests of the majority do require the majority as well which is the great majority of people who whose incomes are below average as it were remember the average is higher than the median that the great majority are can unite 
And historically, of course, the US both achieved it and didn't achieve it in a very profound way, but this is especially the US with the New Deal coalition. And the way it didn't achieve it, of course, is the New Deal coalition sacrificed African-Americans. And that's obviously completely illegitimate. And that goes without saying, never support that. But I think the idea of the broadest possible coalition of interest, I believe in the politics of interest more than the politics of identity. And um, perhaps that makes me rather 19th century in my thinking. But I see politics of identity, and particularly in complex societies with many ethnicities like ours now increasingly and yours historically as deeply divisive and making impossible a shared powerful coalition of change and reform which it seems to me obvious is the necessary political condition for serious change and that is i may be wrong but to me that's an absolutely fundamental proposition of my book I think that's a good note to, to end on. It's been really delightful to have you on Delving In. Martin Wolf, Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator at the Financial Times London, renowned economics journalist and the recent author of The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Thank you so much for coming to Delving In. It was an enormous pleasure and extraordinarily deep and different discussion from the others I've had. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.